Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Brother David Stendel Rost is a voice I've wanted to hear again and anew. We're in a season of renewal in the natural world and in spiritual traditions. Both Easter and Passover this year are utterly transformed. A Benedictine monk for over 60 years, Brother David was formed by the 20th century's catastrophes. A teacher beloved around the world, he makes useful distinctions around experiences that are life-giving and resilience-making, yet can feel absurd to speak of in a moment like this. He calls joy the happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. And his gratefulness is not an easy gratitude or thanksgiving, but a full-blooded, reality-based practice and choice. I don't speak of the gift because not for everything that's given to you can you really be grateful. You can't be grateful for a war in a given situation or violence or sickness. So the key when people ask, can you be grateful for everything? No, not for everything, but in every moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Brother David Stendel Rost is founder and senior advisor for A Network for Grateful Living. I traveled to Austria in 2015 to speak with him at the monastery Gut Eich Priory in St. Gilgen, where he now spends most of each year. You were born Franz Kuno? Yeah, that's right? correct. Here in, in Vienna. In Vienna, yeah. I'm very close to home again. Yes. <laughs> and here we are. Um, how, how would you describe... Um, the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. Of my childhood? Yeah, of your childhood. Uh, I, I think we had something at that time uh, that was, uh, uh, I would call it Christendom, that doesn't exist <laughs> right. anymore. Right. It, it was a yeah. kind of combination between the Christian tradition and all the social forms and customs. It was all one piece. Mm-hmm. And... In my childhood, it was just breaking down. It was still strong enough to give me good support, and I like support. My mother always said uh, when I was a little baby, uh, and I wasn't very tightly wrapped, uh, as they used to wrap the babies. Very tightly, swaddled, yeah. Uh, I would yell. <laughs> Only when I was very tightly wrapped that I felt comfortable. So this tight wrap of Christendom, where you knew exactly what to do, when, and how, uh, that was very good for me. Uh, It was very congenial. Uh, But as I say, it was already breaking down. Uh, There were already wounded uh, from uh, World War I. I remember either sitting by the street and begging Hmm. or or in wheelchairs, the ones who were better off in wheelchairs. But uh, they are a very important part of the a population in my childhood, mm. uh, as I remember. Mm. But uh, I'm grateful for the child for the childhood I had. I had a warm and uh, and supportive family, and uh, and then in in it was in your teenage years 
that the world changed really so com- utterly. Collapsed right? completely. Right, uh, and and also interesting to me. I mean, Austria became an occupied country. It became a fascist country. And the church's role, the church's place in that very dramatic dynamic, because the church became almost a place of contrast to the culture, right? Which it, it, that's one way that Christendom, that, that monolithic Christendom was coming apart. Yes, um, yes. I see it since I was exactly th- uh, 12 when, when Hitler came. So I entered my teens and I spent all my teens under Hitler. And uh, while at the first decade of my life was, so to say, uh, embedded in, in this unquestioned world, uh, then when you get into your teens, you have to rebel against right. that world. But instead, we rebelled against Hitler because that was then the authority. So we were kind of pushed into resistance. Yeah. And it was very clear to us and it was very strong. And the church was the support of it. Well, I want to drill down and focus for the rest of our time on on the notion of gratitude. But I think it's really important that we've kind of delved into the, the backdrop of your life and how you came to that, because there's, there's depth and heft and gravitas. I mean, it's, it's, um, I think gratitude is one of these words culturally that can become superficial, right? Can become, and, yeah. But we're going to talk about spiritual gratitude and, and, and the depth of that. And uh, one, one thing you do is you, you use the word gratefulness, uh, sometimes rather than gratitude. And I, I wonder if you would talk about what is, is helpful about that language for mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. of gratefulness at getting at kind of the gratitude as you understand it. The reason why I uh, use the words gratitude and gratefulness and thanksgiving in the way in which I use them is that we really need different terms for our experience. And uh, we all know from experience that moments in which this gratitude wells up in our hearts are experienced first as if something were filling up within us, uh, filling with joy, really, but not yet articulate. And then comes the point where this the heart overflows and we sing and we thank somebody and, and for that I like a different term and then I call that thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, and the two of them are two aspects or two phases actually of the process that is gratitude. So that's why I'm using it in this way. And, and this idea of a vessel that is still inarticulate until it overflows, uh, that is also very helpful in, a, in another way. It's like the bowl of a fountain when it fills up and it's very quiet and, and still, and then when it overflows, it starts to make noise and it sparkles and it, it ripples. Down. Right. And that is really when the joy comes to itself, so to say, when it is articulate. And for us, for many people in our culture, the heart fills up with joy, uh, with gratefulness, and just at the moment when it wants to overflow and, and really the joy comes to itself, at that moment 
advertisement comes in and says, no, no, there's a better model and uh, there's a newer model and uh, your neighbor has mm. a bigger one. And, mm. and so instead of overflowing, we make the ball bigger and bigger and bigger. And it never overflows. It never uh, gives so us this joy. Yeah. It's yeah. affluent, this affluent society. That means it always flows in. It doesn't overflow. It mm. flows in mm. and in and in and in and chokes us eventually. Yeah. And we don't have to deprive ourselves of anything, but we can learn that uh, the real joy comes with quality, not with quantity. Okay. And that's and an are, important distinction. There are, there are a few quality, say, aspects or qualities of the experience of gratefulness and thanksgiving that you've noted that I'd love to just draw out. And one of them is beholding, that surprise can yeah. be a beginning yeah. of being grateful and beholding and also listening. I mean, I guess what we're talking about here is attending. Yeah. Um, well, uh, for me, this idea of listening and, and really looking and beholding, uh, that comes in when people ask, well, how shall we practice yes. uh, this gratefulness? Yeah. And, uh, and there is a very simple kind of methodology to it. Uh, stop Look, go. Uh, most of us caught up in schedules and deadlines and, and rushing around. And so the first thing is that we have to stop because otherwise we are not really coming into this present moment at all. Mm. Uh, we can't even appreciate uh, the uh, opportunity that is given to us because we rush by and it rushes by. Uh, so stopping is the first thing. But that doesn't have to be long. Uh, yeah. When you are in practice, a split second is enough. You stop. And then you look, what is now the opportunity of this given moment? Only this moment and the unique opportunity of this moment. And that is where this beholding comes in. And if we really see what the opportunity is, we must, of course, not stop there, but we must do something with it. Go. Okay. Avail yourself of that opportunity. And if you do that, uh, if you try practicing that at this moment, tonight, uh, we will already be happier people because it has an immediate feedback of, of joy. I always mm -hmm. uh, say not, I, I don't speak of the gift because not for everything that's given to you can you really be grateful. You can't be grateful for a war in a given situation or violence or domestic violence or right. sickness, things like that. There are many things for which you cannot be grateful, but in every moment you can be grateful. For instance, the opportunity to learn something from a very different, difficult experience mm -hmm. or to grow by it or even to protest, to stand up and, right. and take a stand, right. that right. is a wonderful gift in a situation in which things are not the way they ought to be. Yeah. So opportunity is really the key when people ask, can you be grateful for everything? No, not for everything, but in every moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today at the Gut Eich Priory in St. Gilgen, Austria, with Brother David Stendel-Rost.
And you are um, a Benedictine. And, I mean, it seems to me that the Psalms, in fact, provide such an, a rich demonstration of gratitude is woven into almost every psalm in some way, right? But it is held together with an expression of every conceivable human emotion, anger, fury, murderous fury, a sense of injustice and unfairness and despair and sadness and disappointment. And the gratitude is um, is still there kind of as an insistence, but it's more resilient than the circumstances of the moment, right? It's not a reaction to the circumstances of the moment, but it's a it's 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 an intention that is held. I don't know. I mean, you. It's not you a reaction. You, what is you it? put it, it very well. It's, it's not a reaction to the present moment because that would be something automatic. But it is a chosen it's a response. Choice, yes. It's a real response yes. to every moment. And I and, love. I think when you say not just to what's happened, but to the opportunity that you can discern that has been presented. And that is why uh, it really secures the kind of joy that we as human beings look for. I always say joy is the happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And usually we have the idea, well, when something nice happens, then I'm happy. And when something bad happens, of course I'm unhappy. Well, you can be unhappy and yet joyful. We don't think of that, but there is a deep inner peace and joy in the midst of sadness. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we feel our way into it, we, we know that. For instance, losing a friend, a dear friend, under normal circumstances, not for accident and so forth, under normal circumstances, losing our grandparents, losing our parents when they get very old. Uh, there's a deep sadness, but there's also a, a great mm, a joy. Celebration. In, a celebration. Mm-hmm. A joy for all the love that we received and gave. And, and, and that kind of joy is what we really want, because happiness is, is not steady. But joy can be steady, and that's what we really want. We want a happiness that, that lasts. Yeah, yeah. There's also this, uh, oh, I think, again, to this, you know, this, in the Psalms, there's, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then somewhere you, which is, again, kind of a choice to acknowledge that every day, whatever happened yesterday, whatever you're dreading today. But something you quoted, uh, you used to some lines of Maya Angelou, which to me is a wonderful paraphrase of that in a way. This is a wonderful day. I've never seen this one before. Yes. <laughs> Which is an orientation to the day, right? Yes. Uh, that uniqueness of every given moment and yeah. of every day to open your eyes and know another day. You know, we can't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. We can't take it for granted. In my youth, we couldn't take it for granted because every night the bombs fell. But if you maintain this attitude, it's just as realistic. There are all yeah. sorts of reasons why you couldn't see another day, and you do, and and that is that's a wonderful thing. It's mm. a wonderful thing. You also talk about gratitude as being absolutely uh, uh, inextricable from the notion of belonging. And I think you're talking about belonging to God and belonging to each other. 
Um, say, say something about that. Uh, I remember uh, the, the grace that Buddhists pray before a meal uh, starts with the words, innumerable mm. beings brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. And when you uh, put that into practice and, uh, and look at what's there at your table, on your plate, there is no end to connectedness, you know. Uh, in the end, for instance, uh, most people don't think of it, but in the end, we always eat earth, we eat earth, uh, not in an abstract way, in a very concrete way. This humus is what we eat. Uh, uh, or crystals, when we eat salt, it's pretty obvious that comes out of the earth, that's earth, directly. When we eat vegetables, well, the vegetables were nourished by all the nutrients in the earth, and then uh, now we eat them, or the fruits of these plants. Uh, if we eat meat or fish, then they were nourished by vegetables, and they were nourished by the earth. always comes back to earth. But that is only one aspect. Uh, most of it was grown, also, so people had to work on sowing it and harvesting it, packaging right. it, transporting it. There you have already a couple of thousand people whom you will never see, never know by name, never meet, and yet without them, there wouldn't be anything on your plate. You know, uh, There's this wonderful cartoon where the family sits at Thanksgiving around the table and say, thank you, Jesus. And then in a cloud comes a farm worker whose name happens to be Jesus, like the Mexican farm <laughs> workers, and says, the nada. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So uh, all the farm workers that have been working on getting this food to us mm -hmm. horizontally with our people, our animals, our plants, the, the earth, and vertically with uh, the great mystery in which we are embedded, uh, which those who use the term correctly call God. Uh, it's, it's not somebody up there, it's more personal than it w would be if there's somebody up there. It is this tremendous mystery that, uh, to which I'm as a human being totally directed, totally related to. Right. That makes us human. We are related to that which we are called God. That's tremendous reality. And this inextricability from, or this connection between gratitude and dependence and interdependence, interdependence, right? That any complex yeah, yeah, yeah. experience of gratitude would make us aware of that. Yeah. Well, the main thing is to think it, I think the beginning is, the starting point, is to think it through. The moment you speak of independence, I can't just say, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is anybody talking about who says, I'm independent? E even from one's enemies. From mean. every point of view, uh, it is always... Uh, yes, we belong together. A lived yes, we belong together. So it's a decision. It's something that has more to do with the will than with your emotions or with your thoughts. It is the clear will. Uh, I say yes to this embedding, to this connection of all with all. I say yes to it. And when I say yes to it, not just with my mouth, but I actually live that yes. Yeah. I want to read something. I think one thing 
when we talk about something like gratitude or even compassion, it, it can sound so, again, it's kind of cerebral, kind of like a lovely idea. And obviously we're breaking that down, but um, I think it comes through very much in your uh, writing that gratitude is something full-bodied and full-blooded. Here's something you wrote, um, and, and literally full-bodied. You said, I'm grateful, allowing my emotions fully to taste and to express the joy I have received, and thus I make it flow back to its source by returning thanks. The whole person is involved when we give thanks from our hearts. The heart is that center in which the human person is one. The intellect recognizes the gift as gift. The will acknowledges my dependence. The emotions, like a sounding board, give fullness to the melody of this experience." And isn't it fascinating that we're living in this moment in the 21st century where actually science is excavating this virtue of gratitude, starting with our bodies, um, in a way that theology never could. And I know you've been involved in dialogues and with, with that. In this sense, uh, science has really discovered uh, uh, spirituality, because uh, at least I define spirituality from the word spirituality. It comes from spiritus, that means life breath, aliveness. Uh, spirituality is aliveness on all levels. Uh, it, it must start with our bodily aliveness. For many people, uh, say the sense of smell is practically non-existent. Mm. If you really are grateful, come alive with your smell. Start smelling, not sightseeing, but smell smelling. And and it is is wonderful. It mm. makes you so much more alive. So it starts with the body. But of course, when we say spirituality, we also mean aliveness to interrelationships, aliveness to our confrontation with that great divine mystery with which we are confronted as human beings and which we can sort of look away from or forget uh, or be dead to. We become alive to it. Mm. And all this coming alive, that is, uh, uh, that is spirituality. And so uh, uh, science has discovered that when people are grateful, they come alive. Yes, that They're you can have these, all these measurable outcomes of well-being. Measurable of, which you can say aliveness. Yes. And, yes. Yes. and, uh, and it's, it's marvelous. It's, it's, it's just delightful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but many people have been waiting until science gives it a little push. And that's all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Since you talked about um, spirituality, I mean, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, how do you talk about um, the distinction, the connection between religion and spirituality? The, you know, those two words. I feel like this is something people are very curious about, and we we're, we're evolving our understanding of that. Religion is a difficult word because uh, it really combines two very, very different things. Uh, and you're never quite sure which one you're talking about when you say religion. Humans are religious beings, all humans. That means we are open towards this great mystery uh, that some use the word God for, but uh, whether they use it or not, we are all confronted with that great mystery as human beings. And in that sense... Uh, religiousness is very close to spirituality. The other thing is, out of this 
religiousness. Uh, human beings have, at certain times in history, created historical and social uh, bodies uh, that are called the religions or the religious traditions usually starts with a founder that is a particularly spiritual person, a deeply spiritual person, and then it kind of gets a life of its own. It kind of hardens, it kind of freezes. Uh, so I compare these uh, religions that we find in, in the world with uh, a sort of old volcanoes. At one time they were <laughs> spewing fire and uh, a gorgeous uh, spectacle and now uh, the lava has hardened and, and uh, nobody would recognize that that was at one point fire. It's all rock. But here and there somebody comes along uh, like Mother Teresa or Oscar Romero, Cesar Chavez, whoever, and makes a little crack, or makes a little crack, and out comes this live fire again. <laughs> uh, and there you have to do it with the warmth and the, uh, and the fervor of your own heart. Each one of us, we have a certain responsibility if we stand in a particular religion. Mm -hmm. And that has its own great advantages because uh, it, it gives us forms, it gives us uh, examples, uh, it gives us relatives, all the others that ever belong to it and will belong to it. It's a good, healthy embedding, uh, but it also costs a lot of work, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> inner work. After a short break, more with Brother David Stendhal-Rost. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Brother David Stendhal-Rost. He teaches in a wise and reality-based way about human experiences that are hard-won, yet life-giving and resilience-making in a moment like this. Joy, well-being, and the capacity to be grateful. It's interesting to me, um, I mean, you are part of this tradition, of ben the Benedictine tradition, which, which is very much embedded in the, the great enterprise of the Roman Catholic Church and of Christianity. Although monasticism in its many origins was, was monastic traditions or kind of arose as spiritual renewal movements. Right? I mean, kind of what you're saying, you know, a church that had grown institutional and imperial and lost its fire and its spirit. And so monastics in a sense have always kind of been rebels in their way. Um, and I find, you know, and I, I know you must think about this. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and 
you know, your TED Talk had four million views. People watching a monk talk about gratitude. Um, people are flocking to monasteries on yeah. retreat. Um, and it seems to me that monasticism itself, even while it may look established, has always been something kind of on the edges um, of religion. I'm kind of thinking out loud, but I wonder if this is something you yes, ponder. Uh, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, I would express it differently that monasticism was on the edges. In some respects, it was on the edges of the institution. That's what you mean. Yes, that's but what I mean. as far as the tradition is concerned, it was at the very Driving heart. Driving to the core. At the very core. Yes, yes. Because uh, the uh, core of every... A religion is is the religion of the heart, and that is the monastic life. Yeah. Uh, of course, as an institution, and monasteries are also institutions. It also again and again hardens and and uh, becomes decadent, has to be renewed. But as an idea, the monastic uh, life. All the different monasteries are a network of, of networks. Every monastery is a little network of, of monks and all the ones that belong to it. Uh, it's interesting, for instance, that today when the number of monks in most monasteries, not, not everywhere, in other parts of the world, like in Africa and in Southeast Asia, uh, Benedictine monasteries are growing, growing, growing. Right, the right, right. And they have many young people entering. Yeah, right, very growing. Right, right. Uh, but uh, in in the West, it's it's uh, getting smaller and smaller as far as not monks are concerned. But so many more lay people, as oblates, as we call them, mm-hmm. as extended family members, that the monasteries, if you count the oblates, are bigger now than they were before. Yeah. Uh, and for, for these lay people who live their own lives every day, uh, but uh, in the spirit somehow of monastic life, because there's mm-hmm. a monk in each of us, uh, uh, for them, this is really a, a great uh, help in their lives and, and a help also to live gratefully. So, uh, yes, I think uh, the mon- monasteries have a real special uh, special uh, vocation in our time uh, 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 to have work a as a model. Right? Huh? A renewed vocation. It's, yes. a, it's a vocation that has evolved. kind of. Yes, it has evolved. Yes. Uh, because this power pyramid that has characterized our society, our whole civilization from the very beginning, mm-hmm. for 5,000 years now, this pyramid of power where even all our admirable culture and music and inventions and sciences is all bought at the price of oppression and exploitation. Mm-hmm. It's very sad, but mm-hmm. this power pyramid is in process of collapsing. That's what's happening in our times. Mm-hmm. And if you speak to people who are close to the top, and I have been privileged to speak to people pretty high up in politics, in uh, uh, economy, in science, in all the different fields, medicine and so forth, and everybody says 
we have come to the end of the rope. Things are breaking down. People who really have, have an insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this pyramid uh, has no future. The form and the structure of but how we did power and created. It has to be replaced by yeah. a network. Yes. And everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah. And every... A group, the monks are by no means the only ones. There are many, many communes and other groups out there that live network, or a network yeah. of friends, a network yeah. of women who serve. Yeah. Uh, these networks, they are the future. Uh, Raimundo Panica probably came across him, very, one of the great minds of the 20th century, he said, the future will not be a new big tower of power. Our hope in the future is the hope into well-trodden paths from house to house. These mm. well-trodden paths from house to house. Mm. That is the image that mm. that uh, holds a lot of promise for our future. Mm. Mm. I was looking at a dialogue you had with uh, Zen Roshi. And let's say you've been for a long time... Even in the 60s, I mean, Thomas Merton became very well known for his dialogue with, with Buddhist monastics. And you've also been part of that all this time. And I guess we're with, with Thomas Merton in that great adventure back then yeah. when it was so new. And you lived through a moment in the early 20th century, which arguably, as, as bad as we may feel it is now, was so much more horrendous in terms of millions of people dying and uh, global crises, you know, people starving. And, you know, you talked about the refugee crisis then. We have, you know, you, there were literally people dying by the side of the road, and you were involved in that. But you said something in this dialogue that you said, you said actually, uh, we have had many thousands of crises in our history, but this world finds itself not only in a crisis, but on the brink of self annihilation. That the stakes are higher somehow now. Um, And I wonder if you would talk about that, but also talk about how in this kind of moment, you know, how is it even reasonable uh, or how is it vital to talk about, to use language like gratitude and gratefulness? Like, how is that a resource for us? How does it make sense in this moment? Yes, yes. Well, when we look at things like global warming uh, or the destruction of the environment or this uncontrollable uh, violence that's breaking out here and there and uh, can't be sort of, you can't touch it, you can't grab it. it it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. That is really, I think that justifies us to say, we are at the brink of self-annihilation. However, we must acknowledge our anxiety about it. We must acknowledge our anxiety, but we must not fear. And, and gratefulness is a We great have to acknowledge our anxiety, but we must not, not fear. Not fear. There mm-hmm. is a great difference. Mm-hmm. See, anxiety or anxious, being anxious, this, this word... It comes from a root that means narrowness and choking. And, and um, the original 
anxiety is our birth anxiety. See? We, we all come into this world through this very uncomfortable process of being born, unless you happen to be a cesarean baby. It's, it's really a life and death struggle mm -hmm. for both the mother and the child. And that is uh, the uh, original, the prototype of anxiety. At that time, we do it fearlessly uh, because fear is the resistance against this anxiety. Okay. See? If you go with it, it brings you into birth. If you resist it, uh, you die in the womb or your mother dies. So, so anxiety is a not just a not just an understandable but a reasonable response to a lot of it's human a experience. It's a reasonable response and we are to acknowledge it mm -hmm. and affirm it mm -hmm. because to deny our mm -hmm. anxiety mm -hmm. is another form of resistance. Right, it. and and so 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 that is reasonable, but the fear is actually that moment but of resisting, and it's a completely different move, and it takes us. Our bodies, our minds, in a completely different direction. Destroys it, yeah. And uh, that is why uh, we, we can look back at our life, not only at our birth, but at all other spots where we got into a really tight spot and, and uh, suffered anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is... Uh, uh, it's not optional in life. It's part mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. We come into life through mm -hmm. anxiety. Uh, and we look at it and remember it and say to ourselves, we made it. We got through it. We made, made it. Uh, in fact, uh, the worst anxieties and the worst uh, uh, tight spots in our life, often years later when you look back at them, uh, reveal themselves as the beginning of something completely new, right. a completely right. new life. Right. And that can teach us. And that can give us courage also now that we think about it in looking forward and saying, yes, this is a tight spot. It's about as tight spot as the world has ever been in, or at least humankind. Uh, but... If we go with it, and that will be grateful living, if we go with it, uh, it will be a new birth. And that is trust in life. And this going with it means you look, what is the opportunity? So, and, I, and I think for you, what you're getting at is you, you, for you, gratitude <coughs> is as much about being present to the moment but it's also to you about seeing the opportunity in the moment beyond and seeing the, the circumstances. And availing yourself of the opportunity. Okay. So it's, it's a very active. Yeah. It's a very and that active. is very difficult because anxiety has a way of paralyzing us. Mm -hmm. You see? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what really paralyzes us is fear. It's not the anxiety. It's the fear because it resists. Yeah. The moment we give right. up the resistance, and so everything hinges on this trust in life, trust. And with this trust, with this faith, we can go into that anxiety and say, it's terrible, it feels awful, but uh, it may, it, it, I trust that it is just another birth mm -hmm. into, into mm -hmm. a greater mm -hmm. fullness. You, you've said that God is a direction rather than a something. 
a direction. Yes. Yes, uh, but not an impersonal direction. Mm -hmm. See, mm -hmm. uh, there is a a wonderful line uh, uh, by Rilke. Uh, in which he prays to God. Uh, you know, uh, you know German, so I say it first in German. And I love Rilke as uh, yeah, you do. Yeah, so say it in German, please uh, do. He says, "Ich gehe doch immer auf dich zu mit meinem ganzen Gehen, denn wer bin ich und wer bist du, wenn wir uns nicht verstehen?" Okay. So he says, with every step I do, I go towards you, because who am I and who are you if we don't understand one another? See, that is spoken to that great mystery. But when I say mystery, I mean not something vague. I mean something very clear. Well, it gets us back to the sense of belonging. That belonging at the core of... It's right in there. Yes, I go yes, to you. See, yes. I, the moment a human being says, I, uh, at that moment I have posited a you. That means I'm saying I because I'm related to a you, that mysterious you that is always here. And mm -hmm. in that sense, this mystery is not something impersonal. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's relational. It's a relation. Ultimately, everything boils down to yeah. relationship. You, you also said, I found this such an interesting, mysticism is the experience of limitless belonging. Yes. That mysticism, because again, I think that's a word, you use the word mysticism in, in Western culture, and people might think yeah. of something very abstract, you know, and very elite. No, no, I believe that uh, every one of us is a mystic because we have this experience of belonging once in a while, out of a blue. This, women often say when they give birth to a child, they have it. Or when we fall in love, we have this sense of belonging. Or sometimes without any particular reason, suddenly out in nature you feel one with everything. And every human being has this. But what we call the great mystics, they let this experience determine and, and shape every moment of their lives. They never forgot it. And we humans, uh, the rest of us, tend to forget it. We, we just forget it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if we keep it in mind, uh, then we are really related to that great mystery and then we can find joy in it. and this is On Being, today at the Gut Eich Priory in St. Gilgen, Austria, with Brother David Stendel-Rost. It is a very audacious thing that you say, that, that everyone can be called to be a mystic. That mysticism is not, for you, the domain of professionals, that, that mysticism no, is something human, that is the birthright yeah, of said, every yeah. human being. Uh, uh, the mystic is not a special human being. Every human being is a special kind of mystic. And there <laughs> never was around 
that particular kind of mystic that you can be because you're unique. Never has anybody brought the talents and also the shortcomings that also belongs to it. Mm -hmm. And that goes very closely together with what I mean when I say mystery. It's not something mysterious. When I say this great mystery, this divine mystery that we are confronted with and in mysticism experience, yeah. that is something that we cannot grasp we cannot put it in words, we cannot imagine it in an image, we cannot put it in a, in a concept, we cannot grasp it, but we can understand it. There's a great difference between grasping and mm. understanding. Mm. Mm. And you understand it by being grasped. But it does something to you. And uh, many people experience that on a different level with music. Yes, uh, yes. You understand music, but you can't grasp music. You can't... Uh, and you can't really talk about it. You, you can't. can't even talk about it because you have no words and concepts. But you can understand it when mm -hmm. you allow it mm -hmm. to take hold of you, when mm -hmm. you give yourself to the music. And that great mystery with you might call it life or God or whatever, that great mystery with which all human beings are always confronted, that we can also not grasp, obviously, but we can understand by allowing it to do something to us. Mm. And that openness can be totally silent. Silent openness is, is a wonderful form of prayer. Mm. Hmm. One of the ways you talk about prayer, also in the context of gratitude, as whatever lifts your heart, right? That that's a way to start talking about the experience of prayer. Yes. And what we experience when we are grateful is that something lifts up our heart, that joy that is gratitude and that joy is prayer because it lifts up our heart, yeah. whatever lifts up our heart. And we are made for that. Yeah, yeah. and you, but you said if, if it's fishing that lifts up your heart, then fishing is your prayer yeah. or part of your prayer. I know I have to finish. I guess I just maybe finally, you know, you, you studied psychology, and I sense that you're very aware of how it's instinctive for us to question gratitude. Maybe this is true in Western culture, right? To question its appropriateness or its purity and also to suspect the motives of others. We get very complicated when we walk into this territory of gratitude and to withhold gratitude from others. You speak about having the courage to let ourselves down into the depth which gratitude opens up. And I wonder if you would just say a little bit more about that and maybe how that has come to you, like how you have experienced letting yourself down into that depth. Yes, uh, when I speak of depth and so forth, uh, those are all only images there. there. Yeah poetic images, one must not... But it's very magnetic language, I think. Yeah, well, poetic language has yeah. more power than most yeah. other languages. Yeah. So you want me to be personal. When I'm confronted with something, for instance, of which I have to say, heavens, for this I can't be grateful, obviously, and where do I find the opportunity in this? Uh, that's all too glib, and, and I have to eat my own words. Yeah. Uh, then I let go of all this, of all this thought and all this, and I just try to sit quietly. 
Uh, it's like you take this whole package of things that you don't particularly like to deal with and you throw them in a lake and they go down and go down and go down. And then you just quiet yourself. And when you get sufficiently quiet, that may take long or it may not take very long. Uh, and it may not be in one sitting. It may take days or weeks. But when you got sufficiently quiet, then uh, without you having to figure something out, some answer emerges. Uh, that's the best I can do to express it, but we find somehow the way through. This throwing it into the lake is like no resistance. You see, don't okay. give so any you're, resistance. You're, don't fear. you're letting rid of that fear, Let that impulse fear. to fear. Just accept it. This courage, this quiet holding, holding, and it leads to a new birth. I can't prove it, but I can encourage you to try. Everybody <laughs> tried. And uh, I think we will find it too. Hmm. Okay. I think that people sense, feel that we're living in a very dark time. Um, what are you grateful for right now in the world? What, what gives you hope? Where does your gratitude find a, an abundant place to land? Well, one thing I have already said that's on a larger scale, uh, looking back and seeing that all the most difficult experiences always lead to something new and even something better. Even, even culturally, even geopolitically. On every level. Mm -hmm. on every level. Mm -hmm. But in order to keep us going... It is enough to be grateful for the next breath because it's not <laughs> to be taken for granted that I can take another breath. And if I think of the millions of people who have breathing difficulties and here, I can breathe. Just to remember that, just be grateful for the next mm -hmm. breath. Okay, thank you so much. It's been really, really wonderful to be here. Brother David Stendhal-Rost is the founder and senior advisor for A Network for Grateful Living. His books include Gratefulness, A Listening Heart, and more recently, a new autobiography, I Am Through You, So I. And if you want more gratitude, you'll find audio, visual, and written resources at Brother David's website, gratefulness.org. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, and Gretchen Honnold. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. 
Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org slash discoveries. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting a Ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 